0: Okay. Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going?
1: I'm good. You know, I want you to know, Bradley, when I got here this morning, there was like a pretty disgusting amount of trash right outside, like mm-hmm. right outside on the sidewalk here. Right outside of our store? Outside, outside of P T Netware, oh. And, you know, it's raining and it's like just a super depressing day. And then before you got here, it was cleaned up. Yeah, but, I didn't yeah. see anything when I just yeah. walked in. So, no, so, that's like, great. So, so like they... They took care of it, like, you know, the systems are working. Like
0: I wonder if it's like the business, Lower East Side Business Improvement District or if it's the, the hotel kind of does that the guy looked like That guy looked like the hotel guy. Yeah, anyway. so anyway, but we're, uh, that's, so the downside of, of being the hotel is that their like weird fire alarm goes off a lot, which then happens in our store too, because we're part of the same building upside is, is trash so okay what do you know about this hotel that's above us here very little i know that we try to establish like we you know i, I know that when we got open julie kind of went around the block in the neighborhood and introduced herself and um the people who had the least interest in interacting with us in any way shape or form was the hotel really yeah none whatsoever okay so um so i therefore know very little about them because uh, they don't seem to have anything to do with us. I have occasionally, if you want to get to Ludlow faster from here, you can cut through their lobby. Okay. I've done that. Everybody wants to do that. Of course. So um,
1: anyway. so Bradley, now you're doing an event here at the store this week or is it next week? Next week. week. November next week. 7th. November 7th. Uh,
0: my novel, Obvious in Hindsight, is coming out. Um, if you are a fan of this podcast, and I think you would probably enjoy the novel too. And so uh, please consider pre-ordering it. That would sort of help us with... Amazon and whatnot. Um, I think we're going to do a proper episode about the novel next week. That's cool. what That's what Corey wants. Okay, great. Um, yeah. So whatever, November seventh at is it seven p.m. Six p.m. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll get the answer. Yeah, we're going to get the answer. Over. Look um, it up
1: on the website, and then we'll we'll have. Um, yeah, I think it's six
0: six p.m. Yeah. at PNT Network. Yeah, it's probably probably six. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, that'll be. I'll be here next week, and would love to meet people and sign books and. Chat and whatever you can else. see.
1: You can see the studio. If you've not been here before, you can actually oh, yeah. see where we're sitting. And it, I will say, it's a pretty nice place. I mean, we have this kind of weird view of the street here, but it, it's interesting. It's always got something happening.
0: Yeah. Okay. yeah. The best was the brawl was in, in the club in the hotel. Yeah, that was good. That was my favorite time. Um, um, so, all right, Bradley, what are we doing today? So we're kind of. So I, I had where I thought like midweek, Wednesday, Thursday. I sent Hugo a text, and I had some like big concepts in my mind. I always like when that happens. And I was going to kind of build these things out. And yesterday morning, I sent him a text and I said, I don't have it, meaning I'm going to address them, but I just didn't have like 10 minutes to say on on either one of them. Um, And so we're doing, we'll, we'll still do those. It'll be more like a minute or two, but we're doing a lightning round. So we have 11 different topics and we're just going to move through them one by one pretty quickly. Maybe this will be a slightly longer episode than usual. Um, and should be fun. There's tech stuff, there's politics stuff, there's pop culture, there's sports, there's happiness. So
1: would you enable, let movies. me give a recommendation at then? Cause I have a good Yeah, of one. course. Okay. That's of course. All. In fact, my
0: recommendation is an anti-recommendation today. Oh my God. Stay away from something. Yeah. Well, or just, it, it's more like, why does everyone seem to like this except me? And what's wrong with me? That's <laughs> actually the, uh, okay. the question will be asked. Oh, oh, right. No, I know which one you're talking yeah. about. Okay. Yeah. Don't give it away. No, I'm not, I'm not calling um, you. Um, so the first one is actually just a thank you to the listeners. So th- there's a there's various like websites that sort of chart podcast rankings and intervals and things like that, and um, we get one called Chartable. And I noticed on it the other day that it said, we are number 4,071 in global podcasts. So I don't know. You know, first I was like, well, 4,071. No, never never had like a fan, one of those big foam fingers saying we're number (laughs) 4,071. We're going to get you one Um, of those for Christmas. But then I kind of looked up like how many podcasts there are. And the estimates I saw were from like a low of like 3.2 million to a high of 5 million. I suspect many, 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 many of those podcasts are like one or two episodes at most. Um but consider that number 4071 didn't sound too bad. Well I like it. I feel
1: like we're like we're like an indie podcast where the, for the people who want something that's like you know not like totally off the wall or like from outer space but that has like a distinctive like sort of vibe and and is not what everyone else is listening to. Like I'm a little surprised like you, you, like how many podcasts are just these kind of super bland like they're just it's just like channels on cable TV or something
0: just where you could just flip 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 and like there's no real Sort of like reason to stop. On. They, yeah. th- it's funny. The one you sent me a podcast over the weekend about the big dig, and I, I'm about an episode in so far, and I'm enjoying it. But there is really a formula for these sort of NPR type. I think they like, do a very very good job with it. I agree. The thing it's that always they, a host with three names. They always speak in a soft tone and, and in their sentences and question marks. Well, the, um, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. It's just like there's a there's a way you're supposed to be if you are doing like a left wing public like policy podcast. And they all seem to like be very, very rigorous about adapting. And that remote. is
1: not the Bradley Tusk way. You don't think so? You do not have an NPR vibe. No, oh, that's too bad. I, um, know. I know you're, you're <laughs> fucked. All right. So
0: the the first topic I want to talk about, or I guess you should you should do these. <laughs> I should do them? Yeah. You 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 team up. team up. You team up. Yeah. Okay. So
1: this is your grand concept that didn't that, didn't, that, didn't didn't all the way out. get baked. Yeah. It, and and I'll just I'll just say the term and then which is good and I was excited. Um, tyranny of the minority.
0: Yeah. So I, I think when the main shootings happen, it's the same time that... You're talking about the main shooting? Or, the shooting oh, in, the Maine, in, in, in Maine, Lewiston, Maine. Lewis right, in Maine. Right. Three, three, three kind of big things from a news standpoint happened last week. You had you know, the war in Israel, and I'd say here in the U.S., especially in New York, very widespread support for Hamas. Um, Number two, the House Republicans finally picked the speaker, but it was an amazing debacle. Um, And then number three, there was another mass shooting this time in Lewiston, Maine. Eighteen people were killed. Um, And and what I was thinking about in this notion of tyranny of the minority in many ways, you know, since we talk about mobile voting on this podcast constantly, it's not that surprising. But in all of these cases you have these very small groups of people who have managed to hijack public policy, public consciousness, uh, the entire narrative. So shootings, right? You know, we, we should not have any mass shootings. We certainly have way too many. Um, but the reason we have that is because we have really low turnout in Republican primaries, heavy, heavy membership in the NRA of those voters, and therefore no Republican congressman is willing to Uh, support an assault weapons ban because they will lose their seat immediately. Um, Chris Jacobs, who's a Republican, who was, he's still probably a Republican, but he was a congressman from upstate New York, just outside of Buffalo, after there was a mass shooting in a Buffalo supermarket, voiced some support for the notion of an assault weapons ban. And the, uh, he was, this election was like two months later and the line was taken away from him. He couldn't even run uh, on the Republican or conservative party lines. And this guy was a Trumper, right? This is a guy who voted against impeachment, voted that the election was was stolen, like all this shit, right? Um, and so you basically have this tiny group of people that vote in Republican primaries, and the same is true on the Democratic side, just not an issue on this particular one, but we'll get to that. So 25,000, 30,000 people, let's say, at most. And because of them, you know, Kids keep getting killed. People keep getting killed. People in bowling alleys, people in bars, people in schools, people in churches, people in Walmarts. And it is terrifying, right? And it has made us uh, a country that actually our life expectancy has started to decline because there are so many shootings in this country, whether by suicide or or, or murder. Um, and so that's one. And then the House Speaker debacle, same, the, the same idiots who are, you know, throwing people out of office for saying maybe we shouldn't make it so easy to buy an AK-47 are the same ones that are empowering people like Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and whoever else. Um, and the Republicans sort of ended up—it's uh, sort kind of hung by their own petard or hoisted by their own petard. What's the what's the phrase? Hoisted by your own. Petard. Yeah, yeah, in the sense. But I don't, actually don't think that the people who did it really minded because I think chaos sort of is the goal end goal for them. Um, and they eventually elected this guy Mike Johnson, who no one's ever really heard of from Louisiana. Seems extremely extremely. Conservative, um, although it seems like he believes it, which maybe is an improvement over Kevin McCarthy, who <laughs> didn't believe anything and like didn't even barely pretend to believe anything. Um, but either way, again, it is Mike Johnson's staunchly conservative, heavily Christian focused uh, view of the world in line with the vast majority of American citizens? No. So should that person be the Speaker of the House of Representatives? No. But again, because we have this tyranny of the minority ranging from both sort of at low turnout in primaries to gerrymandering to, you know, Matt Gates sort of getting this concession from McCarthy when McCarthy won the speakership, where any person could call for a vote to motion to, to vacate the speakership. Um, all of that are sort of examples of minority rule leading to absolute chaos. Uh, and the third would be sort of left-wing support for Hamas, um, you know, as a Jew— who lives in New York City, Jordan on Saturday night, I think it was, Jordan uh, from, I won't say where he lives, I guess, but from his apartment, there was a rally, a pro-Palestinian rally uh, right below. So he was videotaping it out the window, and he sent it to me. There were people flying Iranian flags. So we're not even just talking about Palestinian flags or anything. There we were people who are just basically saying, you know, Jews should not exist, right? These are the same people, by the way, who were condemning Iran Six months ago, you know, whatever it was when when women were marching for, for rights there. And now, again, they're so desperate to be part of the, the club and to maintain their identity um, above all else that, like, any empathy, any rational thought, any sort of just common sense goes straight out the window. And then you see, and I think President Biden's doing an incredible job, but, but I worry that people like Hakeem Jeffries are going to start to... Pair back their support for Israel, because I'm sure Hakeem is saying, well, I have all these super loud left-wing members like, you know, Tlaib and Omar and AOC and everyone else who are... He's pretty strong against the DSA, though, Hakeem, isn't he? I worry that um, the more and more and more they do this and the more visible it gets, and because even if the rally is only a couple thousand people in a city of 8.5 million, um, it gets so much attention and so magnified that this is how the tyranny of the minority works. That, he, whether it's him, it won't, Chuck obviously won't because Chuck is Jewish. Biden, I think Biden's obviously been fantastic on Israel, but that doesn't mean there aren't people all around him who are worried about the far left and losing support from them.
1: And so yet again, isn't this sort of like defund the police though, where it's so at odds with what the, what the, what the mainstream of the country yeah, wants.
0: But, but, but that- defund, if you look at police department budgets, a lot of them did decrease because the left-wing sort of politicians who were for the police had enough political currency that they were able to convince other politicians that this is what they were supposed to do. And you saw cuts in police funding, right? And so, it, which then leads to people getting hurt, right? New York City has, I think, 33,000 cops right now. We're supposed to have about 40,000. So some of that's budget cuts, some of that's attrition, some of that's that the, the left has made the notion of being a police officer so abhorrent that people don't want to do the job anymore or are afraid to do the job. So, um, but but in all these cases, so then what I was thinking is, okay, so for first I thought I had this new concept, right? And then I was thinking like Nixon was talking about the silent majority 50 years ago, right? So clearly, you know, N- Nixon said this a lot before I did. Um, You're gonna give Nixon credit. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and so I guess my question became, it, are we meaningfully different than, than Nixon's notion and concept 50 years ago? And my guess is yes and no, right? So no, I think human nature is probably roughly, we don't evolve that fast, right? So human nature is human nature. But what didn't exist in the age of Nixon was cable TV and social media. And so I think the the power of the minority to sort of take control and spread their tyranny and allow mass shootings and allow, you know, pro-Hamas terrorist marches and everything else, is because the means of communication have shifted so much that, you know, something very small can then be magnified and seen hundreds of millions of times. Um, And so as a result, what Nixon was warning about 50 years ago, and because it's Nixon, we all sort of dismiss it because he was an odious human being, but um, he wasn't all wrong in the sense of you have people who are very vocal, they tend to not represent the majority in any way, um they were already in his view kind of loud and, and had disproportionate power back in whenever he said this 68 or whatever it was um and now here we are 50 plus years later and those same groups have even more power because we have this combination of, of terrible political corruption in the sense of things like gerrymandering combined with the power uh, of the internet um and it's only getting worse and worse. And so. You know, we've talked about various fixes for this on this podcast all the time, repealing Section 230 and um, mobile voting and things like that. But um, I, I just think that what we saw last week, unfortunately, was not a bad week, but it was a harbinger of, of what's to come. Um, so you have another
1: concept that you also texted me about. Yeah. Um, and then I asked you where I could read something about it. And you said I couldn't because you'd made, because it, I made it, up. it up. Yeah. Um, So this is, uh, the term is minimal viable suffering. So talk about that. So
0: so I was, you know, I take every Friday morning a a meditation class with my teacher, Kim Brown, and we spend basically half the class meditating and half talking about, um, just kind of talking, but it's really sort of me asking questions about Buddhism and um, kind of the, you know, a a different perspective on life. And, you know, in tech, we have this notion of a, a, minimum viable product. And what that means is, what do you need to build to test your concept with the public um, so that you get a sense of whether or not this thing can work? And so it's how much do I have to build for the MVP findings to be worthwhile, right? And so oftentimes, especially in the super early stages, what we're talking about is the money needed to build out the MVP. We invest a little later than that, so that tends to not be us quite as much. But if you're an angel or a pre-seed investor, that's what you're funding effectively is, the creation of the MVP, to then see if the founder's thesis has any value whatsoever. And if so, and there's a little bit of traction, that's how they then start raising subsequent rounds of financing. So it, it, it's it's a good concept because everyone sort of understands it. It's like a, it's not lingo for the sake of lingo. It's like lingo where I think it just is, is a useful shortcut um, and saves a couple of minutes of conversation. And I was thinking Buddhism, there's almost this notion of kind of minimum viable suffering, right? Which is, as I understand it, Buddhism believes that there is a certain amount of suffering that is inherent to life and you cannot escape it and you cannot make it go away and you're going to encounter it one way or the other. And where I think Buddhism is very different from sort of the tendencies that we sort of developed you know, over here is the argument in Buddhism would be when you have discomfort, when you have anxiety, the best way to deal with it is to sit with it and to feel anxious and to feel uncomfortable and process why you're feeling that way and let the moment both engulf you and then let the moment pass. And that is the best way to ultimately process it healthily and move on. I think in our society, we tend to resort much more for immediate relief, right? And that could be anything from drugs to alcohol, to sex, to gambling, to, you know, the inner social media or or whatever it is. and I think that you know it's it's one of those things where we're really trading short-term relief for a lot more long-term pain because we're not really processing uh, our emotions and figuring out what the problem is or or what we could do about it or just how to even accept it. Um, and I, I think I guess what I want to start putting forward is the argument for minimal viable suffering. And I think to me this became especially clear when I quit smoking weed. So I quit smoking weed a couple of months ago. I had been a fairly regular user, you know, since college. And, you know, when it was illegal, the friction of getting it was enough to keep my usage somewhat moderate because I had to go to some level of trouble to get it, right? Um, Once it became sort of legalized and then fucking New York City with the 8,000 illegal weed shops, completely omnipresent and highly potent and mainly uninspected and unregulated and everything else, the effort I needed to put forward to do it in moderation because it was so plentiful and so available, I had to expend so much energy to do that that I realized I was better off just stopping entirely. It actually has been a lot easier to just not smoke weed at all or right, at than, moderate. Drugs yeah. than moderate. But one of the things that I didn't expect to happen during the process that did was some really, really difficult moments where you know, there were things in my life that I you know, knew were issues or problems or failures or whatever else, but I think in many ways how I dealt with it was like, well, fuck it, I'll just smoke a vape, right? right. And instead, I had these periods. Where I had a, a weekend where I didn't have the kids. Um, it was like a summer weekend. I was in the city. No one was in town. I was really pretty much on my own, and I think clearly that's what I would have done, both for entertainment and diversion, but also for sort of you know self-medication and pain relief, and I didn't, and it was... Miserable, right? In the sense of like, I had to sit there with a lot of shit that was really hard to accept, to process. Um, tons of anger arose during that. A lot of, a lot of grief. Um, but ultimately, you know, by doing it then and then having that gone for some more time, I did finally process a lot of these things, and I'm far healthier. Not just because I now no longer smoke weed, but but also because. I forced myself to sit with the discomfort, sit with the anxiety, um, and sort of endure kind of minimal viable suffering. Now, it wasn't if the suffering wasn't viable, then maybe I would have turned to weed or 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 whatever, right? or at least sought help in some way. I didn't have to do that. I was able to kind of get through it on my own. Um, but but ultimately, as as difficult as it was, it it was a huge turning point in my life, right? Um, and so, I think this notion of minimal viable suffering, which, you know, you could argue in a way is like the marshmallow test, right? Which is, are you willing to take a little bit of short-term sacrifice in return for more long-term gain? Um, I think it's something that, you know, I would hope could catch on a bit. I get that, you know, I'm like probably every annoying person that starts learning about meditation and Buddhism. They're like, <laughs> look what I just discovered. Now the world will change because I have seen this, right? Like, people are like, come on, give me a fucking break. Um, and... My friend, Josh, I say, who is the person that has kind of been helping me sort of through this whole process of kind of learning meditation and everything else. I, I sent him a text sort of saying, what do you think about this concept? And I'm going to read his response because he didn't quite Endors disagree it. or agree, okay. but I thought it was interesting. So he said, I've never thought about it that way. That's very interesting. Here's what I would say. We cannot control our moods or our emotions. They come and go. Anxiousness will arise. Sadness will arise. But that is not suffering in the Buddhist definition, that is living. The suffering comes from when we crave for them to go away or when we identify with those feelings. If we sit with them, watch them like clouds, moving through the sky, then we realize it's impermanent, that it's not I, me, or mine. So we can feel sad or angry or anxious, but we are not wrapped up in it. That's the suffering, Uh, that you can control. Let me give you an example that I'm dealing with right now. I tweak my back, it hurts. Okay, that's one level of suffering. I cannot control that feeling in my back but I sit here and think, when is this going to go away? It's never going to go away. I can't feel such an idiot at the gym to lift that weight. Now I can't go to the gym and work out. I'm going to get fat. I'm going to get weak. What was I thinking? That suffering, that I can control, and I can control that by being in this moment, not in the past or the future. I don't know if that answers your text. Sorry for the long answer, Um, but I, I thought that that was sort of an interesting response in that um, one, I haven't discovered all the secrets of life in a in a forty five minute meditation class. Um, but but two, you know, it, it, where I think Josh and I sort of were at least on the same page is this notion of rather than either m- making excuses for your problems or taking them in a in a much more dramatic direction um, to create sort of a mental diversion or turning to some sort of third-party substance or or whatever it is for relief, um, you just sit there and sort of confront it in reality as it actually is. And by doing so, as Josh said, the feelings do pass and and you feel better.
1: Right, although it's funny, just that that word confront feels a little strange to me in that context, right? Because he's not talking about confronting it. It's almost just like sitting with it, right? Confronting it means like you're going to grab it by the lapels and
0: like shake it out or something, right? more just sort of confronting the fact that like Josh lifted a weight he shouldn't have lifted. It was stupid. I'm sure when he was doing it, he knew he shouldn't have been doing it. I, I do this shit at the gym all the time. You do? You lift weight, like too many weights? You know, now that I only lift with a trainer, no. But when I lift it on my own, yeah, all the time because I'm in a rush. I mean, that's how I broke my back in 2003. You know, I was doing squats and there was a guy um, in front of me waiting. I was waiting for him to finish and he had an extra 25 on each side of the bar, which doesn't look like, you know, that much weight. And I was in a rush. 25
1: on each side. Busy. I'm an
0: important man, whatever. It was bullshit. And like, so like, fuck it. I'll, I'll be fine. And when he finished, I stepped out with it. And then it was too heavy and it pulled me down so hard that when I hit the ground, I cracked two vertebrae l1 and l2 now thank god the weight fell away from me and not on me because then i think i might have been paralyzed as opposed to just having a broken back um but basically because i was being you know stupid um i really injured myself thank god everything is okay but um point being so i i, I guess the confront in my sense here would be you confront the fact like okay i did something stupid it happened i can't change the past let's move on i guess that's how i would define
1: confronting. okay um, should we move on to the next topic? Sub- I yeah. feel like we could talk a lot more about this, and maybe no. we should. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to put a little editorial note to, to listeners here. So often Bradley will send me stuff like that, and what I want to do is build almost like a whole episode around it, mm-hmm. and Bradley really
0: prefers the, uh, the variety and doing a lot Short of things. So,
1: so if anyone has an opinion on that. <laughs> yeah, well, you,
0: can, you can weigh in. By the way, we've been getting more and more feedback from the listeners lately, so th- thank you. I love it. And what I love is a lot of it isn't just like, you Soccer, I like that podcast. No, we don't it's get like too many youths. No, sucks. no, it's, but it's really like substantive thoughts. Like uh, last week we got a great one about the city manager concept. So yeah. um, really appreciate it. Um, we got a good thing about the guy
1: with transportation problems in his neighborhood. Did you see that? I don't remember. I think got it last night. I, don't, I didn't see it yet. Okay. It's good. We, I think we should definitely talk about it, but we're not talking about it today because we need to do some studying on it. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, should we go a little quicker on these? these, these yeah, yeah, we'll try. Or... I want to skip down to one thing. Well, I, want to, I want to skip down to, to because to, it, it, it doesn't, not that it ties into what we're talking about directly, but Killers of the Flower Moon, you are you are not a fan. doesn't mean it, we can't go back.
0: I thought you were going to go to Matthew Perry. No, no, that's I on think, the second page. Are no, I understand, but addiction fits into what I was just saying. Let's go to Matthew right? Perry. Substance we'll abuse, go back to Killers of the Flower Moon. All that. So, so is your question, Do I, like, how do I feel about it?
1: Is my question about Killers of the Flower Moon or no, Matthew, about Perry. Matthew
0: Perry? You were the one to put Matthew Perry in the no,
1: list. No, m- my question is so Matthew Perry's about our age, yep. or was about our age. Um, and, you know, he's a super successful person. And, and, like, he's is that kind of celebrity where you do sort of feel like you know him, you know, because he's so present. Even, I mean, I wasn't a, I didn't watch a lot of Friends episodes, yeah, but he's sort of omnipresent. Like, mm-hmm. you can't really avoid it. Yep. Um, and so seeing someone who had so many gifts, who had so many opportunities, who did so well, so successful. Like just being kind of consumed by his demons and you know dying very young, um, I, don't, I don't know. Has a particular resonance for me. I was curious if it. it had what for was you.
0: interesting is it did, and I was surprised because it was more empathy than I usually have in these situations. Usually, you're just like, "I oh, fuck that celebrity." Um, I think I've, I think my normal attitude would have been tens of millions of people, if not globally, hundreds of millions of people suffer from addiction. Most of them didn't get the chance to be rich and famous and, and all of these other things like Matthew Perry did, and why do we pay so much more attention to a, a celebrity when this happens, when this is happening to regular people it's all up, over the streets all, of New York all yeah. the time, right? But, but what's interesting, and maybe this reflects some growth on my part, is I actually did feel some empathy for him in the sense of like, here's this guy who clearly was very talented, um, and was had the ability to sort of do the kind of work that he really wanted to do and do it well. Again, I didn't really watch Friends either, but even for those of us who didn't watch Friends, I've still seen ten episodes or whatever, right? Like sort of like Only ten? Coming on, Impossible. Not not much more than really? that. Um Have you seen the one that i mentioned in? No, but you've told me about it. Okay. I know I tell um, everyone. Yeah. So um we can we can do a special episode about that. <laughs> special episode about the episode where Hugo's name was. Hugo Lindgren Ring Design. Um so um, and I kind of felt like, you know what? It really sucks for this guy right that he had all of this talent and he probably worked very hard at his acting and he was so uh engulfed by these demons he had so much trouble kicking addiction that ultimately it ruined his career and it took his life at a very it was what 54 or something like that yeah, sort of 54. really young age and um so i i surprisingly had a different reaction than i normally do in these situations and, and really did feel some empathy for him just that that you know On one hand, did he objectively have, even in the 54 years, a great life? Yeah, by the standards of sort of Western success, check the box, rich, check the box, famous, check the box, whatever. But he probably had a very hard time ever really feeling content and happy um, because he was struggling with these addictions for, you know, his entire head was during the the filming of Friends he was struggling with this. So, yeah, I I felt a, a surprising, for me, amount of empathy. Um.
1: Killers of the Flower Moon. I just want to go to that. I'm curious because I haven't seen it yet, and I, I kind of, I, I don't know why. I do sort of dread it, maybe because I didn't like the Irishman I don't at recommend all. recommend it. And but so why? So, so Lyle, you didn't like I, it, but why does everybody like it? Well, do you understand? Yeah, I
0: okay. think. Well, there's one of two reasons. So Lyle and I saw it Saturday night. Okay, uh, Lyle must have just been dying. Yeah, he was dying. Uh, <laughs> in fact, at one point, I went to the bathroom mainly out of boredom. And I came back, checked my phone, and then I came back and I said, what did I miss? And she said, nothing. (laughs) And um, (laughs) There's your review right there. (laughs) Um, So why do people like it and then why did I not like it? So there's two arguments for why people liked it. One would be it's a genuinely great movie with it's a really sort of underlying interesting story about murder and and crime and oil and the birth of the FBI and all this stuff. Um, and you have these very famous actors led by Robert Nero and Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, but but great acting all, all throughout the movie, I thought. Um, and therefore, and then one of the most famous directors of all time in Martin Scorsese. So the, Are you a Martin Scorsese fan? Yeah, generally, yes. I didn't like The Irishman either for the same reasons that I didn't like. Off lie. the top of your head, what's his best movie? Goodfellas. Goodfellas? Yeah. I'm going to go with Mean Streets, but I like Goodfellas right. too. Um, and big Scorsese fan. But... Uh, so maybe the answer is people loved it because those who are truly able to appreciate cinema um, see the greatness and richness of the acting and the dialogue and the blocking and everything else, and that's it. The other argument for why it's so well-reviewed is that um, people think that they're supposed to like it because it's Martin Scorsese, right? And they think, oh, here is the absolute master's craft, maybe the last big movie he'll ever make and he picks this incredibly sort of esoteric but interesting concept and brings in these actors who are so incredible, like he always does, and um, therefore, this is what great cinema, great, I use that word sort of in a derogatory sense, but like what, what what a great movie is supposed to be, and therefore I must like it, right? So in the same group think that has people who, Probably don't actually support, you know, putting Jewish, beheading Jewish babies, support, have them supporting Hamas because they think they're supposed to if they want to be considered progressive. Um, the alternative would be it was just a fucking long, slow, boring, self indulgent movie. It was <laughs> three hours and 27 minutes. Like, and I know and this because out not, of 10, two, three, what? You... I, I mean, because there was like really good acting, maybe you give it a four. But here's the thing, if I had seen it, it's coming out on Apple TV in, I think, a few weeks. If I had seen Apple TV, I wouldn't have lasted 20 minutes. right? I would have been like, this boring, and I would have got up. The only reason I made it the whole time, uh, two reasons. One is we were in the movie theater. Two, we were at Alamo, and I couldn't leave till I paid the, the bill uh, for, for Lyle. <laughs> it was Lyle
1: trying to leave? Does he want? He to... doesn't
0: know you can leave. Oh. It's funny, because <laughs> I remember once him. Abby and I saw a movie, and it was terrible. Uh, it wasn't like three hours, 27 minutes, but it was really bad. And afterwards, I said, uh, you know, I, I said, but I sort of assumed she was enjoying it. And I said, did you like it? She goes, no, I hated it. I said, me too. I said, oh, we should have left. And she goes, you can do that? And I'm like, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I wish we had left, because I, I, then I kept thinking, well, maybe it's going to like be awesome at the end. Um, but I, I kind of think like The Irishman, which also was an interesting underlying story and great actors and everything else. I think maybe it's sort of the emperor has no clothes and that Scorsese was wildly self-indulgent and he is at a point now where no one will ever tell him no, ever tell him he's wrong, ever disagree with him. And so every instinct he has to, for every shot, every reaction, every everything gets put in there. And the notion that you're making with it so long that it becomes inaccessible to a lot of people doesn't really occur to him. And so, um, you know. But what I was wondering in the movies, A, is there something wrong with me? Because why? Well, why we, we
1: know there's something wrong with you, brother. Yes. That's what the podcast is about.
0: And then two, is it that I have um, developed some version of ADHD, like I think many people, because of screens and everything else, and my ability to sit through a three hour and 27 movie in 2023 is significantly less than it would have been in 2003,
1: All perhaps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mark Andreessen's tech manifesto. Yeah. So Mark is kind of developing this little cottage industry of these manifestos. Um, this is not his greatest one.
0: No. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. So I, I, I read it, and originally it was on my list of things that I wanted to spend some time on on this podcast, and then I had to sort of cut it back because it's basically like, look, we believe in technology. Technology solves problems. Technology is how we advance from the Stone Age to where we are today. We believe in growth. We believe in markets. Um, we believe in new ideas. We believe in, and then they had a couple of specifics like nuclear fusion, but it was, it was, it was very 50,000 feet, may, maybe even higher than that. And I found myself like there's very little, that I disagreed with it. And the only thing I actively disagreed with was that they specifically opposed universal basic income, which I support. Um, and look, I sort of get it from the sense of mobile voting is very much a, a techno-optimist perspective, right? Which is that We've got this broken democracy, this broken society. It's leading to school shootings, dysfunction, and everything else. And there's a way to use technology to fix it. Um, and we're going to try to make that happen. So that, that fits into their playbook very, very well. But then I think about the reality of what I have to do to actually make mobile voting happen. All the constituencies and alliances we have to form. All the people we have to fight off. Um, all the things that we have to do that have nothing to do with building good technology. I mean, we're, we're going to finish the tech. At the end of this year we're going to put it out beginning of next year and if the answer was if you build it they will come then i would be done right i would release it and we would make it open source and that would solve the problem democracy would be saved and like that's just the first fucking step man and then like it's going to take years and years and years of slogging through and fighting and bills in every state and people attacking me and me attacking people and all of these different perspectives many of which are valid you know, being brought into the mix and and working through all of that to actually make this the reality of how we vote. And I felt like what Mark and his, and his fellow signees wrote, and maybe because he had so many people signing it, it just had to be super broad based to get a, a lot of people's names on it. Um, but it was just sort of like, yeah, this is cool, but it's almost like my underlying reason for being in VC, which is like, okay, so if you're never going to leave Palo Alto, like, sure, fine, this is your worldview. But, like, when we got to get this shit done in city government, state government, federal government, deal with labor unions, deal with community groups, deal with ideologues, all this other stuff, you know, this notion of just technology is good, sure, um, but that in and of itself is just a starting point. And so I guess where I was disappointed in the manifesto isn't that I found it problematic or offensive or anything else. It's just more that I didn't think it really said anything, right? It was just just too vague. And it
1: doesn't do anything. It's just like it's just like a like a kind of bland cheer for this.
0: Yeah, create like, technology. I agree. You know, like that's literally what I do for a living. But like overall, I just was um, disappointed in that it wasn't. I think that the people who wrote it probably Mark think it's very thoughtful, um, and I have to say, I didn't think it was that.
1: Thoughtful. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Um, okay, I want to ask you a couple more things. I don't yeah. think we're gonna hit everything on the list, um, but we can go back to the next week. Um, So Dean Phillips, Representative Dean Phillips is uh, challenging uh, Biden in the Democratic nomination uh, for president um, for the Democrats. What um, now I was a little excited when I saw this because Mm -hmm. I got confused and I thought, you know, there's a musician named Dean Wareham who is in a band called Luna with his wife, Britta Phillips. So I was like, "Oh my oh, god, that guy! Would you that. support him if he did?" Well, no, I'm not sure I would, but I but I was just like, at least I was interested,
0: and then right. I realized it wasn't. I had I'd no be. idea who I was at the gym, and I see. That, so you don't know who Dean Phillips is either. Well, or... now I do, but right. like I I you know there had CNN on, and I was sort of just like between sets, and I kind of looked up, and it said this. And I'm like, I have no idea who Dean Phillips is, right? And then you know, well, that's why it he's out. running, right? Yes, <laughs> um, but I guess the question is, and this is true, whether it's. Dean Phillips or RFK, although running independent now changes that equation a little bit, um, or even this like threats like, oh, if Biden doesn't sort of accede to the to the left-wing view on Israel, he's going to lose our support, not not in the general election. And like, are there plenty of examples in American political history where the primary is divisive enough uh, that people get truly, truly angry and then stay home um, on election day in the general election and the candidate from the party that they're actually in loses as a result? Yeah, absolutely. Like Mike Bloomberg, when he became mayor in 2001, in part, um, there was a runoff for the Democratic nomination between Mark Green and Fernando Ferrer, and the Green campaign did some things that the Ferrer campaign felt were really racist and anti-Latino, and... Did the, you think they were? There was quite, there was one where there was like a, a depiction of Ferrer with his skin made darker than it actually is. So, Oof. yes. Yes. Um, And then um, the Bronx Democratic machine as a result just sort of sat in their hands on Election Day and you know, I'd say at least it's estimated at least fifty thousand votes that normally would have been cast for the Democrat were not cast, and that was Mike's margin. It's of incredible, and it's in like
1: like that 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 sort of it's almost like an engineering like you just turn a dial, you know, like one. Yeah, is, although
0: that world is less and less fading. and less yeah. true. Yeah. But but um, you know, this was now twenty two years ago. But I, I don't think that's the case here, regardless of whether it's Dean Phillips or the Warren israel or anything else. Which is because Donald Trump unless he drops dead, is going to be the Republican nominee. And he is so singular and so divisive and so all-encompassing in every way that I really have a hard time believing people are like, oh, you know, I really think Dean Phillips would have been a better choice than Joe Biden. So I'm going to stay home and allow Donald Trump to become president. I just think because the alternative is so severe, so stark, so beyond any sort of social norms that we accept, that in this case, the notion that Biden will lose votes in November because of issues or people that challenge him from within the Democratic Party, you know, during the primary season? Like, I, I just don't well, buy it.
1: I, 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 I'm, I it sounds persuasive to me, but the one worry I would have is that, is there some world in which the, the sort of far left really wants Donald Trump to be president? Yes, right? I, I, I was thinking about that. Right. Yes,
0: I do think that ultimately they are more relevant when there's a big resist movement and they can feel more righteous and get more fans and more clicks and more likes and more followers and everything else and so even if it's a little bit of cognitive dissonance where they would say and maybe at the very very basic level believe of course I don't want Donald Trump to be president um I think on some level they bet just like by the way your old industry, the news media, same thing. I mean, the truth is, the yeah. New York Times is much better off if Donald Trump wins that all. Oh, my election. God. yeah, they're, no, they're, 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 you have to read it. You have right. to, you know, you know Les Moonves had that quote before he got sort of forced out of CBS in scandal, which mm-hmm. was like, Donald Trump may be bad for the world, but he's damn good for CBS. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I think there's a lot of people who are putatively on the left who would benefit from a Trump win and on some level may be manifesting that in their actions, even if they don't mean to.
1: Um, is your non-recommendation killers of the flower Yeah, I have one
0: substantive topic that we didn't get to that I'd like to. Oh, you want to? The Meta Meta lawsuit. Go ahead. So, um, last week there were two lawsuits filed, uh, in one, the states of California and Colorado attorney generals led a group of 33 states, um, another, uh, eight states in the District of Columbia, um, both filed pretty similar lawsuits against Meta, um, saying that effectively uh, that they've committed, uh, fraud um because they have all these algorithms and processes that hook kids in various ways that are you know promote content towards kids that are incredibly unsafe and that they um you know are covering it up and therefore um that is a violation of all kinds of different consumer protection rules and i think it's great you know good for all the 41 ags who did it i support them Fully, this is not the first time there's been a lawsuit like this. And the problem is, in my view, um, not doing it, but that, you know, it'll go through a sort of long, slow legal process. They'll win, and then on appeal, they'll get knocked down, and there'll be a settlement. And then eventually, Meta will pay another $5 billion fine. And the truth is, it's such a drop in the bucket for them that if the system that they have, in which ensnaring and addicting kids makes them lots of money... You know, this is not enough of a disincentive to stop doing it, and I still applaud it. But I I think there's a step you can go further. That I I did some research, um, and I didn't find any real examples of it. But why not have public pension funds divest from Meta and social media stocks, just like they did from tobacco stocks or during the apartheid era, companies oil? Um, And you know, it seems to me, you know, I understand that a lot of the growth in the market in the last year or so has been fang stocks and. FANG, the first letter is is Facebook, um, but at the same time, if you are a state or a city controller or the head of a, of a pension fund, public pension fund of some kind, and you believe that Meta's products are leading to us, and uh, do you get Jonathan Haidt's up stack? I don't. Should I? Yeah, I, I like Jonathan I really, Haidt. I really like it. Okay. Um, so there was a, it came this, the timing was great because I already had this on my list and then it, it came in this morning. And they were talking about, um, and he focuses very much on the specific issue of the harm of social media towards teenage mentality. So um, ages four, 10 to 14, 10 to 14, um, since 1968, I'm sorry, since 2009, sorry, till today. So the last 15 years, basically. in the suicide rate among girls ages 10 to 14, 137.8% increase in boys ages 14, and then 15th to 19th, a little better but not much, uh, 81.5% increase since 2009 among girls, 51.9% increase among boys, what is the big thing that has happened in the world since then um social media right right? now COVID too and there's clearly the the two fed into each other in a really terrible way Um, but there's clearly one thing that has changed from a macro perspective vastly more than anything else and we know uh whether it's francis hagan's whistleblower testimony or you know the, the ag lawsuit we know that the algorithms On Instagram, for example, serve up content to girls. uh, Not think like, here's how to cut yourself. Here's how to properly engage in an eating disorder. Here's how to pinch. Here's how how to binge. Here's how to purge. Um, They're doing this, right? They're doing this. They're doing this. They're doing this. And this is like cigarettes, right? This is like the real evil of our time. And I think one day we'll step back and, and realize that. But much in the same way that there were people who were running public pension funds back then, Um, that showed real leadership by saying, we're not going to support this because ultimately that's what companies care about most is people buying their stock and holding their stock. Um, Or even now we're seeing with oil a little bit. Um, That's what I think ought to be happening here, right? Because, you know, it's one thing if Facebook has to pay a five or seven or $12 billion fine as a result of the AG lawsuit. But if all of a sudden there are hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap being held by public pension funds who then just dump it um, then all of a sudden, that sends the price into a downward spiral. And then the practice that they're engaging in, which is deliberately harming kids in order to drive more clicks and eyeball and revenue, becomes economically negative instead of positive. So if we assume that Zuckerberg's doing a cost benefit analysis for all of this, which he is, um, it's like everything else we're seen on this podcast, you, you got to change the inputs. And so I, I think what the AGs are doing is great, um, but I think it would be even better. If uh, controller started doing that, and so I'm gonna, you know, start making a few calls and see if anyone will. Most of the time, when I have these ideas on the podcast and I start talking to politicians, they think I'm crazy and <laughs> won't move forward. But sometimes we see some some glimmers of hope. So, um, so yeah, I wanted to put that idea out there in part because I was so surprised that that it wasn't, you know, when I was just poking around on Google, at least it wasn't really out there. Yeah.
1: Um, I, that's another topic, Bradley. I think we could spend a whole, a whole episode talking about it. So, uh, listeners, if you think we should do a little less skipping around and a little more delving into specific stuff on this, particularly on this Tuesday episode, we'd like to hear it. Yes, no, or any thoughts in between. I think that'd be really cool to, to to get a sense of what what listeners think. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna give the recommendation since sure. you, you told people yeah. what not to do and it, it ties back to what we were talking about at the top of the of the of the podcast. It is the podcast series The Big Dig, which I think mm-hmm. is nine episodes, which is incredible. It's on the 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 um the the, the Big Dig it was a project in Boston where they put a part of the highway under under this underground. It lasted like forty years. It's actually two tunnels, one to the airport, one under the middle of the city. And what I love about it, and I, I'm going to read a, as a little teaser for you, because mm-hmm. Bradley, I think you would really enjoy this little thing. Um, they're talking to, uh, to, a, um, to one of the guys who was like, involved for like a decade of his life. The whole thing has taken like 40 years. Um, so he describes the six phases. Tell me if you've ever heard this before. Six phases of, of the project, of a project. No. It starts with euphoria. Okay. It goes to fear. Mm-hmm. Then it goes to resignation. Mm-hmm. Then it goes to search for the guilty. Then it goes for the punishing of the innocent. And the final thing, which I know you will enjoy, praise and glory for the uninvolved.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really funny. I mean, the one thing I will say, and I started listening, as I mentioned, to to the first episode uh, over the yesterday, um, but is just as someone who occasionally goes to Boston for for work or for fun, usually for work. the fucking tunnel from logan airport to downtown is fantastic oh my god yeah so like I, it doesn't you know doesn't actually justify whatever pain they went through to get there or the cost I, well i'll listen to the whole podcast series to learn more about it but just as someone who benefits from the work that was then finally done i mean i wish we had something like that in new york yeah i i, I totally agree and let me give to- props to
1: the producers because they the the voices and characters in it you know you have like tip o'neill and ronald reagan and then you know Michael Dukakis and and all these you know pretty major political yeah. figures that are that are not sort of top of mind right now. And you see, okay, here's one other detail, and then I'll, then we're gonna let everyone go. Okay. So there's an override vote in uh, the Senate to override a Reagan veto of the Highway Act. U.S. Right? Senate of the U.S. Not Senate. Yeah, okay. um, so the 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 big dig is part is in the Highway Bill. Reagan vetoes it because he doesn't want all the spending. Yeah. So the Democrats have I think 54, 55. Votes they need two thirds to override the veto. They succeed on, in getting nine Republican senators to override to vote in favor of overriding the veto. One of whom was Mitch McConnell. No shit. Yeah, no. It's it's and it I I it's a little bit of a spoiler, but I will tell you there's so many good details in this thing, and also even that story I've only scratched the surface of how it's talked about, and there's lots of great details in there. So. I apologize for for giving away a really great little plot point, but there are so many more. So if yeah, you're, so so
0: so far so good. So yeah, okay. we definitely second Hugo's recommendation. So all right, man, thank you. Thank you. I'll you see you next week. Bye. Bye. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.